I wanted to tell you a little bit more about Rumi, the Persian poet who wrote the words to our opening song. Rumi belonged to a branch of Islam called the Sufis. I bet you've heard of Sufis before. The Sufis were a bit of a renegade movement who did not place great emphasis on following the five pillars of Islam and getting it all right, but they were really uh, motivated about having direct experience. That was their path. Uh, the author, Stephen Prothero, who wrote the book we're going to be using in our class on Thursday nights, said something that I never heard before. He said the Sufis were divided into two types. Two types of Sufis. One was called the drunk, and the other was called the sober. Those were the two types of Sufis. So this is a pretty provocative image, and it may not be the most helpful image for us because in our time, you know, alcohol is a concern in many situations, and so it's, it, it, I would say to you, in looking at all these kinds of religious and spiritual language, always go for the metaphor. Always go for the metaphor. So we have this idea of these two kinds of Sufis that use that metaphor. Rumi, by the way, if you read his poetry, he talks about getting drunk all the time. And I've also, I always turn the page and say, all right, let me get to some others that I understand better. What I understand now is he's talking about that experience of expanded consciousness. And maybe some of you have seen the Sufi dancers. Maybe you've done Sufi dancing uh, at some point in your life. It's a neat experience. We used to do that at summer camp. Uh, or maybe you've seen the whirling dervishes that do just spin and spin and spin. If you happen to be going to the Parliament of World Religions in, in November, you get to see the whirling dervishes as part of that experience. Ruby says, drink all your passion and become a disgrace. He does not mean this literally. He says, close both your eyes to see with the other eye. Open your hands if you want to be held. Rumi is part of a mystical tradition that believes that we can have a direct experience of the magnificence, the utter magnificence of life, or some might call it the divine. And you've seen the dancers, and you may know that this is a technique that Sufis use to create an experience of expanded consciousness. The Sufis are advocating direct experience over analysis. That's what they're advocating, direct experience over analysis. So apparently, uh, Rumi was a bookworm in his younger days and had a huge library and studied all the time until he met a teacher named Shams. And Shams is in a lot of the poems too, if you read them. And Rumi became completely devoted to Shams. It's hard to know if they were master and disciple or platonic friends or maybe even lovers, I, I don't know. But they were devoted to each other. 
And the story goes that Shams took all of Rumi's books and threw them in the fire. I'm not advocating that. There's an other version of the story that says he threw them in a pond. But either way, it was a radical break. They had a relationship somehow in which Rumi often experienced an elevated state of consciousness. Until one day Shams just disappeared. Shams just disappeared and no trace was ever found of him ever again. The author, Stephen Prothero, speculates that he may have been murdered. That was one of the stories, that he may have been murdered, but no one really knows. But after Sham's disappearance, Rumi became the profound poet that is still hugely popular today. This is no caravan of despair, said Rumi in the little song that we sang this morning. This is Rumi's voice. This is no caravan of despair. In our UU tradition, a figure who echoes, a couple of people who echo some of these same messages, one of them would be, I would suggest, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and some of the others known as the Transcendentalists. Emerson tells us that we don't need any intermediary to know the divine, as he calls it, we don't need a priest, necessarily. We don't need a church, although I would encourage you to come to church. <laughs> but actually, you don't need that, and you don't need a book, either. You don't need any of those things, because it's possible to see everything as a direct perception. And he, Emerson goes walking in the woods, and that's, he has these experiences of... I don't know what to call it. I called it expansion of consciousness. He has this ex these experiences he describes where his individuality seems to recede into the background. His individuality seems to recede into the background and what comes into the foreground is the beauty of nature and he feels like he's part of the trees and he's part of the brook and the birds and the squirrels. And he wrote about those experiences, sometimes was ridiculed for them. But it's clear that they were very important to him. And his buddy Thoreau is another one who lived out at Walden Pond. If you go to Concord, you can see where his cabin was. And just observed nature. And that became the text, that direct experience of the world. The little girl and her grandfather in the story Amy told us today don't have a great mystical experience, but what we see is we see the grandfather repeatedly bringing their talk back to the present moment. Watch him like a, like a spiritual teacher, bringing them back to here we are together by the campfire, isn't this good right now? Even though we may not know the answer to every one of your questions. So we can, of course, speculate about all kinds of explanations about what's behind our experience and the stars and talk about theological systems of thought, which is not a bad thing to do. All that's fine. 
But the message of the story is the gentle guiding back to the beauty of that moment, back to the beauty of that experience itself. The completeness of just being together in that moment and contemplating the mystery and the magnificence of the universe. It's not that analysis is wrong or a waste of time. Analysis has its value. And we you use have a strong analytical side that is not going away anytime soon. I do not think that's going to happen. But what these other stories lift up is the power and beauty of direct experience, of being right here, of being present with another person or a group of people or in nature, just being in that relationship. And this is what I was um, referring to earlier when I talked about the covenant circles where we try to create an atmosphere that's not the same as a book discussion group. Not that there's anything wrong with a book discussion group. They're great. But in covenant circles, we don't encourage discussion so much as listening without judgment, without giving feedback. Boy, that is a tough thing to do. It's an excruciating temptation for some of us. But it creates a different kind of experience of being together. What it does, and what really I would suggest to you that almost all the spiritual practices do, is to reduce the impact of the ego. To reduce the impact of the ego. Put, let the ego fall into the background. And then, if we just let that hyperactive ego rest for a few minutes, well, what would happen then? What would come to the foreground? And that's what all these techniques are about. That's what the dancing is about. That works in contra-dancing too, by the way. That we sometimes just, the ego part slips away and it's just the pattern. It's just the pattern moving. And we're just part of that larger pattern. That's an experiment worth performing. This does not mean that we give up analysis. It just means that we don't have to do analysis every minute of every waking hour. We could take a break from that for a few minutes. We could try something else. We could try meditation or whatever it might be. The writer Deborah Taffa, who wrote this lovely essay, I just read you a little bit of it, describes her early experiences going to the Catholic church services at the Pueblo. She remembers how cool it was inside that building. It was probably hot outside. And inside that white building, it's cool. She remembers the smell of the incense. She remembers that there are native symbols on the ceilings which she loved. She remembers how soft her mother was when she leaned against her and often fell asleep during the homily. Yeah. Not talking about you. I'm <laughs> not talking about us. We don't want to you can fall asleep if you want. But it, how she was totally interconnected in that moment. How she just felt so good to be in that space. Everything was at peace. The world was a wonderful place. 
And then she talks about as she grew older and found out the sort of negative side of the religious tradition that she had grown up in. Then it became so complex in her mind and she fell into conflict and, and um, she becomes an activist later on. But that doesn't, it doesn't uh, invalidate that moment of just being in the present that she had as a kid. So there are important elements of truth in both of her experiences. Maybe it's just growing up. Maybe she was just innocent as a young girl but lost her innocence as she grew up. That's one possible way to look at it. But does that mean that there was something flawed in the lovely experience of her youth? I don't think so. I think our ability to be caught up in the present, to be in love with the world, to be fascinated with some aspect of life, these abilities do tend to erode as life moves on. And we meet with disappointment and disillusionment, and life seems to have more problems than beautiful moments. But that doesn't mean that these changes that many of us experience are necessarily progress. I see this particularly with relationships with people of other faiths. How do we encounter people of other faiths? And as we live in this world, that happens more and more every single day. In our culture, when we think of people of other faiths, the question that occurs to us is, what do they believe? What do these people believe? Oh my God, they believe that? That can't be possible. How could anybody believe that? I want to tell you uh, that when you ask that question, that is a Christian question. That is a Christian question. You are behaving as a Christian when you ask that question because that's the important issue in Christianity is what you believe. What it would be nice to know is that none of the other religions put that question in first place. So just be aware of that. Just be aware of that. That's a Christian question. It's an all right question, but when we ask that question, what do they believe, then often it goes right into separation. It goes right into, you believe what? Get serious. So, Maybe that's not the way to start. Maybe even in our thinking, that might not be the way to start. It might be possible for us to have a peaceful and perhaps satisfying experience with these same people if we were just maybe watching the eclipse together or cheering for the same baseball team. You know, I, I had an experience a while back, I can't remember what it was. Somebody helped me with something. I can't re It was like a good Samaritan. And somebody helped me with something, and then I just said, oh, thank you, and they walked away. And I said to myself, I wonder what they believe. <laughs> you know, who cares? Because something happened. Something happened that is not about that. We might feel all kinds of connections and very likely compassion in their life stories, how they dealt with loss and made their way in the world. 
So if we start with experience, we often have a far better chance of connection than if we jump immediately into beliefs. I'd just like to throw that out as an idea. And particularly those of us who are going to the, the interfaith gathering in November, we have a chance to test out those possibilities. What it would mean not to worry primarily about what people believe. Most people believe either what they were taught as a kid or they're mad about what they were taught as a kid. Those are the two main possibilities of what people believe. And you can see that in both those possibilities, they're trapped in something they didn't really create. A different way of starting that could be a, a useful thing. What do those other four or five uh, billion people think is the most important thing rather than belief? Aha, come to our class. <laughs> Taking the Sufis as an example of another kind of path, a different kind of path, what is of the highest priority for Sufis, according to our author, is doing what is beautiful. Doing what is beautiful. Rumi says, there is no salvation for the soul but to fall in love. And I will tell you, it's not romantic love he's talking about, although there's nothing wrong with that. It's not romantic love, it's being in love with life. It's being in love with life, with the trees and the flowers and our neighbors and our kids and our grandparents. It's that kind of love, being fascinated with jazz or being fascinated with the struggle for justice and wanting people to have their rights because justice is also a form of love. Justice wants love to be extended to everyone. The Spanish Sufi philosopher Ibn Arabi, who lived before Rumi, says, there was a time when I blamed my companions if their religion did not resemble mine. Now my heart accepts every form. Love alone is my religion. So, do not be alarmed. We are not going to lose our ability to make distinctions or to think analytically. I am absolutely confident that is not going to go away. Uh, it's, it's, our, it's our UU identity, actually. I, I, was on, I was a hospital chaplain once, and there was a Catholic priest who was one of the chaplains, very nice guy, and we talked about religion a little bit, and he, he said, oh, you're a UU. He said, you live under the tyranny of the intellect. <laughs> he was wrong, but <laughs> I loved him anyway. <laughs> we are not going to lose our analytical side, and we don't want to lose it. But there are times, especially when the world is so harsh right now, so harsh and mean and difficult to be with, then it is important for us to have moments to step back and to just see 
the beauty of the world and to accept what is and to practice listening, just listening, and to practice non-judgment. We could do that inside the church. I don't, you do not have to practice non-judgment with anybody who could be in political office that you don't like. <laughs> you do not have to practice non-judgment in those situations because that's a different piece of life. But you, you still have to love. You still have to love because justice is a form of love. So we need that counterbalance of being able to be present, to feel joy in this moment, to feel the friendship, feel the possibilities that are in each moment, and the hope and love that is always there, even in hard times, calling to us.